Alan Warner reading Sullivan's Ashes, his new piece of work on the theme of Elsewhere, commissioned by Edinburgh International Book Festival. I actually was going to write non-fiction, but I went into my default mode quite easily. This is a story called Sullivan's Ashes, and it's... I was going to set it in Oban, but I consider myself something of an internationalist, so I decided to set it on the Isle of Mull instead. <laughs> Which, of course, we can see from Oban on a clear day. Its uh, main characters are in their 50s and 60s. They're not particularly admirable people. Like most stories of mine, let's say 50%, this came, its origin came in a pub. Some friends of mine were discussing our favoured funerals. So I just riffed on it from there. Also notice, uh, without trying to, there's a res reference to the SMP in this. An SMP t-shirt, no less, which I used to own. <laughs> and wish I could get back. This is Sullivan's Ashes. Myself, Cousin John, Sullivan's third wife, Eileen, and the sergeant all sat together in the police station at Tobermory. We read once more the photocopied clause in Sullivan's will. I wish for no funeral service, but to be cremated privately, and then for my ashes to be spread from the specific silver urn by a semi-naked and beautiful woman <laughs> galloping a white horse across the sands of Calgary Bay, Isle of Mull, irrespective of expense, inclement weather, and the challenge of finding a beautiful woman on Mull. <laughs> Eileen said, Aye, he had to get that last wee dig in, right to the bitter end. She was the only native amongst us. We looked to the sergeant, <clears throat> a pleasant and practical man, but new to the job. Cousin John said, it's no an urn, it's this bashed up old champagne bucket from the Grand in Brighton. Yes, said Eileen, and if I hadn't been fooled quite so often, I might have had something to leave me, us. But it said here is leaving you the bucket. John rustled pages to quote. Eileen gave cousin John a hard look. I'll use it too, once I've burned him up and I'm rid of his leftovers. Practical as ever, the sergeant asked, how are you to keep ashes in the champagne bucket with the great probability of a howling gale? <laughs> Quickly, cousin John said, I was just thinking a good dose of yon kitchen cling film stuff over the top, and the lassie can pierce it with her long fingernails. The sergeant and I both nodded, though we all felt Cousin John was getting a bit ahead of the game. He went on, and we'll need Doc Fraser standing by to treat the lassie for frostbite of the extremities. Best if we get a healthy young lassie. One of them strippograms, they stand up best to the cold. I respect those lassies. Eileen said, I don't want the doctor there, and I doubt he'll attend. Sullivan never did invite him back up the poker evening, not after he won the house off him but after he stopped prescribing all those sleeping pills. So you intend to proceed? This is what we wanted to ask, Sergeant, from a legal point of view, the possible ramifications. Round here, that could depend on exactly how... He flicked the page and read aloud. Semi-naked any young lady actually is. Topless, Cousin John demanded. I said, on Mull, semi-naked is a bikini. A bikini doesn't break any law. Topless might be in decent exposure. It's certainly exposure in this climate. 
Eileen took another Dunhill out of her pack and told us a bit nostalgically, on Mull, semi-naked as a skirt above the knee. Can I smoke in here? Afraid not, said the policeman. Couldn't you lock me in one of your cells, Sarge? I'd even close the peephole. I gave Eileen a glance. <clears throat> she wasn't a day under 55 and still well-preserved, but hopelessly flirty. What can you say about Eileen? Her life was like all those Dolly Parton songs, or maybe just one down from Dover. The sergeant ignored her. I said, so, we have a week or so, Cousin John pondered, unless we wait to watch the weather for the sake of the beautiful lassie and the horse. Eileen erupted, I'm no having Sullivan's ashes waiting up in that house. They'd crawl out and make for the drinks cabinet. Why the hell couldn't he have them scattered off the South Downs in a gentle English breeze where he belongs? The sergeant looked troubled now. He stood. I might need to phone Edinburgh about this. Then he thought aloud to himself, but what department? Another thing, the cousin held up a pointed finger, and he was a farmer. There's no white horse on this whole island. Oh, good God, Eileen groaned. Use a Highland cow. <laughs> You'll no get it to gallop. The cousin answered in a voice revealing too much experience in such matters. Eileen, cousin John and I drove back up the tiered roads to Sullivan's modern holiday bungalow high above the bay. In the disused connecting garage sat the scandalous American pool table. The house had been won off Sullivan by Doc Fraser in a two-day poker marathon years before to legally pass to the doctor at the time of Sullivan's death. The doc had already been up to measure for new carpets. Plumpton, the fat cat, named after the Sussex racecourse, sat by an empty bowl in the kitchen floor. He'd brought round some semi-feral acquaintances for a meal, four of the beggars. They all sat, turning their snooty heads expectantly. Eileen stamped her heel and there was a rough scrum around the cat flap as all five fought eggs at first. Wait till a good doctor deals with yous. <laughs> Cousin John said, Fred Pinder over in the mainland, he has stables, supplies horses to them movies that come venturing up round here. He can get a whole bloody cavalry troop. He'll bring you over a unicorn in his horse box. <laughs> Sullivan never passed a penny on a pavement without picking it up. He had been Sussex, born and bred. He owned this long-playing record, old songs of Sussex, agricultural labourers' ballads from both sides of the Downs. I loved that, both sides. I wanted to ask the doc if I could inherit the disc. In the 70s and 80s, Sullivan had made his money from slot machines in Brighton and Eastbourne. One time I asked him what it was like as a livelihood. Brighton Rock meets parking meters. Eileen once told me that Sullivan collected the coins in straining plastic buckets every night of the week and loaded them into his Volvo hatchback. The rear suspension eventually broke. Apparently there were 150 unused mops in Sullivan's Brighton garage. A what the butler saw machine still stood in the front lounge at 10 pence a go. I would have loved to have inherited that too, but the dock had got the house contents as well in a later poker game. Sullivan had fallen in love with Mull after just one drive around it. He must have seen Calgary Bay for the very first time that day. I never once heard of him going round the island again, so it made an impression. Above Tobermory, Sullivan had a fine view over the bay and across the sound. I once asked him why he loved it up on the island so much, and he swung open the bay windows. Listen, he yelled. Just silence, isn't it? Bloody marvellous. It's the elsewhere. When you're an Englishman, you have England and you have elsewhere. And you have to pay to get elsewhere, sonny boy. 
That winter of westerly gales, silence was in short supply. The poker games were interrupted affairs. The tiles rattled on Sullivan's roof like a mic'd up marimba. We watched the molehills actually slide across his lawn and up the slope where they tipped into the fish pond. The herons had taken all the goldfish. On the third day of gales, a baffled young thrush came down the chimney and immediately broke its neck on the inside window pane. Sullivan took it to the kitchen and de-suctioned the back door open. That dead bird flew one last time, off the end of the shovel, heading east at 60 miles an hour. Plumpton's lockless cat flap had been going mental, like the chattering teeth of some giant. It had to be sealed with electrical tape, which puffed and salivated. Sullivan didn't venture up for many winters after that. When I returned to the Isle one week after our meeting at the police station, I was not alone in the bar of the car ferry. Fred Pinder had often phoned from his stables and sensibly suggested stunt women from the film industry. Portraits had been emailed to Cousin John, but none of these women passed his strict criterion. There I was in that early boat with Fred Pinder in his vintage SNP t-shirt. And Miss Zoe Murphy, a third-year dramatic arts student from Coatbridge. Coatbridge Sunnyside, she emphasized. Zoe had told me she wanted to be in musicals, but this assignment seemed like a strange first step. We paid her 700 cash up front, but she still insisted she'd throw in some pole dancing, of which she'd done plenty to supplement her student grant. Every person in the bar stared at Zoe in her fluffy blue fake fur jacket, even the women. I believe someone was going to approach her for an autograph. When the vessel came into the Firth of Lorne, spray smashed the bar windows like shampoo suds in a shower cubicle, and the boat dipped from bow to stern. After 10 minutes, Zoe headed for the toilets. Fred Pinder was drinking whiskey with iron brew, and he leaned across. On my way down to see if they'll let me check, Mr. Blade isn't kicking the back of his box out. I don't think she can ride. Can we sit her on the horse inside the box first, Fred, and see if she stays on? Fred said. No, you pay me for the horse. I'm nothing to do with any rider. After Fred had gone below deck, barefooted Zoe swayed back to her table. She'd taken off her heels and carried them by the straps in one hand. The makeup and the tanning salon was all in vain up against the tossing firth. Her beautiful young face was grey as steak. Look, I know you swore you could, but you're not like all those other actresses, are you? Water ski, snowboard, speak French, ride a motorcycle and horse. I can ski, I've been to Shamanex. <laughs> Horses, though. Sure you can canter a horse, hands-free in a Force 10. Even a wee trot would do, maybe. Have a nice bikini with me, wait till you see me. Did plenty Gymkhana when I was wee. Rosettes all over my bedroom wall in Coatbridge. Sunnyside. We're not going to sink, are we? Has this boat sunk before? <laughs> she looked fearfully around the panorama. Look at all the mountain things. There's snow on the top. We've mountains in North Lanarkshire. I climbed one when I was a wee lassie. Really? What one? One of these slag heaps from the old coal mines. <laughs> she soon returned to the toilet with her arms held out horizontally. She'd left her high heels upright on the table and they fell on their sides and spilled my coffee. Word travels fast on the dark island. At the ferry terminal, five boy racer cars were drawn up brutally together in their usual row, observing exactly who disembarked. I noted the car windows were all wound down. The young male drivers and passengers shouted excitedly through those aligned windows as if into some antiquated telegraph system. Those five cars followed my hire car and Fred towing his horse box up the road all the way to Tobe. Zoe had sunglasses on next to me. I feel all famousy already. 
Oh, look, there's no bloody reception on my mobile. That's terrible. I'll just put on a wee touch more cheesy lipstick. She wound down her window and her shades blew off. Around Sullivan's ashes and the champagne bucket sealed by cling film, there was a lively party going on up at the bungalow. All our old poker crew were there. Eileen was drunk and repeatedly played No Tears in the End by Roberta Flack on the hi-fi. Disturbingly, though, Eileen was only dancing with Doc Fraser. Zoe furrowed her brow at the turning record and actually asked me, this isn't a CD, how's this thing make music? Cameron, that wannabe journalist, was there, and he kept trying to interview Zoe, telling her it was for the Island Arts newsletter. Then Cousin John arrived, already in black tie. He studied Zoe from a distance in a shy but still unhealthy manner, then crossed over to me and whispered, Aye, good long fingernails there for the cling film. <laughs> <laughs> Zoe sneaked back to the bathroom yet again. Then she appeared next to Doc Fraser and crying Eileen. Johnny Cash was singing Melva's Wine, which never failed to make Eileen weep. Zoe tapped the doc on his shoulder. She showed him something. Then suddenly, the couple broke from dancing, and the doc, Eileen, and Zoe, as a threesome, headed back to the bathroom and locked the door. I became fearful that drug use had reared its ugly head, <laughs> imported into our poker circle by Zoe, or perhaps practices which were even more unspeakable. But soon the doc emerged and drew me aside from the melee. That daft wee lassie you've got can't ride any horses tomorrow. Oh no, she's months pregnant. He held up one of those white plastic testers with blue lines. She's been peeing on these all day with the same result. I didn't even examine her, and I could have. For God's sake. Fred Pinder was listening, and he chuckled. But Cousin John didn't take it well at all. Then there was a fearful crying scene. Eileen comforted Zoe, and landline calls were made to some startled suitor in Coatbridge, Sunnyside. Some of those boy racer cars presumptuously drew up outside. The young men with shaved heads were unable to choose between the pool table or hovering around Zoe. But when they found the dock had already confiscated all the pool balls, they immediately gravitated to Zoe. When they learned of her condition, they swiftly re-gravitated and fed coins into the what-the-butler-saw machine. Ah, well, Sullivan would be happy business is still ticking over. Cousin John nodded at the silver champagne bucket. Within half an hour, Zoe was slow dancing mournfully with one of the young bloods, and very soon they cajoled her off down the hill to the bars. What did I care? All was lost. Meanwhile, Eileen had retired to her marital chambers with Doc Fraser, even before we threw the last of the poker crew out. Cousin John whispered in my ear, Well, well. Looks like Eileen's continued residence is assured. I nodded, noticing one of Zoe's white testers placed upright in an empty glass like a cocktail stick. <laughs> From my sleeping bag at half four in the morning, I heard Zoe come back alone and go into the spare room. Yet through the wall, she mumbled several times tantalizingly. I feared she was with cousin John, and half in jealousy, I arose to find John, not for the first time, asleep in the garage in the pool table in his shirt and tie escaping the drafts. Zoe was sharing her bed with Fat Plumpton, the cat. I suppose you want your money back. She stroked the old purr box. No, dear. You get yourself a good fast pram. <laughs> the next morning, the scandal firing around the island even reached my ears. Zoe had been un unable to find a pole, but had danced around an erect brush handle in the Mishnish bar, <laughs> then collected donations for her child's education. <laughs> Calgary Bay is a noble location to spread your ashes. 
Facing the infinite west, a cup of sparkling sand with jaws of rock protecting it, normally the sea glows a chlorinated blue in at the rock edges, magnifying arm-thick ropes of kelp ten feet under the surface. It looks like a better, more restful place down there. That shade of blue would normally have matched the aquamarine lines on Zoe's pregnancy tester. However, on that morning, a turbulent swell was bursting forward from the sea in long and creamy rolls. Up on the road, a considerable audience had gathered, sheltering shamefully behind the windscreens of their cars. The convoy of boy racers was there with their mobile phone cameras and high-definition camcorders at the ready. Using a long telephoto lens, old Shutter's Stuart from the Port Star newspaper was lurking about in the trees for a shot to accompany his inevitable article. If Zoe had reached the saddle, he'd probably have tried to sell it on to the Scottish Sun, but now he was in for grim disappointment. Our poker crew sheltered behind the horse box around Mr. Blade, Pinder's beautiful white mare. The horse was saddled up, his ears flattened against the wind. Fred held him by the bridle, and I was glad young Zoe couldn't climb on such a powerful-looking creature. The sergeant, cousin John, Zoe, with a hot water bottle under her fake fur jacket, and Doc Fraser, arm around Eileen, all fearfully studied the impatient beast. Nothing for it, Eileen stated. I've got my wonder brow on, though I haven't read a horse in 20 years. Cousin John curled his nose. That's breach of contract. Don't you listen to him, beautiful, Doc Fraser told her. You'll be grand as Charlton Heston riding up the sands in El Cid. And if you take a wee tumble, well, I'm a doctor. I shook my head, squinted out to sea, then walked down to the water's edge. The sergeant and cousin John joined me. Eileen's going to break her neck, the policeman assured us. I can't allow it, cousin John agreed. Aye, it's terrible, a wonder bra. It's breach of contract. She's attractive, but she's no beautiful. Sullivan wouldn't approve and have smelling of the doc's old spice as well. Help us out, sergeant. I pointed far into the water, towards the mighty west. They ignored us for a good spell, then intuited a uniform, and so reluctantly they came in, brought to our waving arms by the rollers. Two young men and two young women, rising out from the salt water, surfboards stuffed under their arms. What's the problem? There's no restrictions here, one man shouted, wiping his mouth. He was offended as all our eyes turned directly to the young lady standing beside him in her wetsuit. Cousin John opened his mouth. It's Venus on the half shell. Ask and you shall receive. The sergeant pointed. In the name of the law of this island, what are you wearing under that, young lady? <laughs> I beg your ruddy pardon? What are you wearing under that? The girl looked at her friends, then back at the sergeant. That is your business. I'm just wearing a bikini under it. Cousin John yelled, ever ridden a horse? <laughs> she was Australian, 22 and tanned all over, hand, hair bleached by open skies. She had ridden bareback horses since childhood and 50 quid clinched at this time. She and Mr. Blade started at the far end of the beach and came back down along that surf line towards us all, hooves smashing up puffs of spray as she leaned back in the stirrups up and down the sand, out the flashing silver champagne bucket, and freed from the young woman's fingers. Old Sullivan spread himself across our beautiful beach as he passed off, quite gloriously, into some new kind of elsewhere. Thank you. 
More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.